0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum?
1: Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony.
0: And I'm Maggie.
1: And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you've while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that, too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads.
0: Hello, welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie.
1: And I'm Harmony, and we're here with a very special guest. Her name is Karen Joy Fowler. She is the author of many great books, but today we are talking about her latest novel, Booth. Karen, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I
2: would be happy to. I often feel there's actually not that much to tell for the 72 years that I've been in this world, but I think that you will both maybe resonate with this, that if, if I were to ever write a memoir, which I have no plans to do, pages and pages and pages of it, perhaps the vast majority of it would be about whatever book I was reading, all the time that I spent in somebody else's mind and in somebody else's world. And I certainly had a strong sense as a child that real life was just an annoying interruption from whatever book I was trying to read. I live in California. I grew up in Indiana, but I've lived in California since I was 11. And I started writing when I was 30. I have two kids and seven grandkids, and life has been very good to me.
1: That's wonderful. I do definitely resonate with that. I think Maggie probably resonates even more because she's the ultimate bookworm. So that's wonderful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Harmony and I have always said that if we would write a book together, we would write about all of the reading that we do through this platform and other places. I guess we're going to dive right in then. And I'm actually going to begin at the end here. I'm a historian, Karen, so I hope that you'll indulge me just a little bit.
2: Oh, I love it.
0: Yeah, you talk a lot about the fact that readers of historical fiction often want to know what's true about a novel like this one and kind of what has been fictionalized. And I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about the creative process of writing a novel where you have so much primary and secondary source material to work with?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I, let me just preface this by saying that I find that question, which parts are true and which parts aren't true, completely understandable, very sympathetic to it when we're dealing with a historical novel. When we're just dealing with contemporary fiction, I feel there's a similar impulse that people have to try to figure out what you know, which parts of the book come out of your own life, and I'm less sympathetic to that. I I I like a book just to be a book. But but yeah, in the case of a historical novel, it seems to me a perfectly reasonable thing to wonder. So the tricky part with the Booths is that there is so much material and so much of it is suspect, I think, that you know, once John Wilkes Booth pulled the trigger, everybody's memories of who the Booths were and what the impact of the family on... American history was changed completely, and you know we we know now that eyewitness accounts are never reliable. And you add to that two hundred years having passed, and this massive event that changed the way everybody was thinking about these people, and and what you're left with is a lot of mythology, a lot of stories that are to- have been told so often that they take on. A sort of authority that, if you trace them back to their source, they maybe don't don't earn, and so it, you know finding material was easy in most cases. But because I did really want, to the extent that I was able, not to make up things about the family that did not actually occur, you know, try, trying to determine what. What stories were true about them and which ones were not true, in my opinion, turned out to be the tricky part. And I said, you know, I said that I didn't want to make things up, but of course it is a novel and I made up enormous amounts of interior, the interior of their lives and dinner table conversations that, of course, they did not have. But in terms of what happened to them and who, to the best of my ability, I think they were. I I tried to be accurate. I tried to be careful.
1: You've kind of already touched a little bit on our next question, but because you're writing a family drama and because so much of this writing is based on the inner lives of the Booth children, we were wondering how your process might differ from somebody who's writing about just a historical event versus writing about the people. Because you're you're trying to get into this very interconnected drama, and it's just interesting how how do you go about researching for that process? How do you go about that creative thinking to be like, how am I going to get into this head?
2: Booth really kind of represents two extremes for me in terms of what kind of process I can use, depending on which character I'm looking at. So the three characters that I allow myself to access they', inner inner lives and inner thoughts are the older sister, Rosalie, the younger sister, Asia, and Edwin, a middle brother. This was a very large family, I might note. There were 10 children in all, although four of them died before they reached adulthood. So for the two younger, Edwin and Asia, there was a lot of material and they both left behind letters, a considerable body of letters. And Asia wrote three books, all about her family one about her father, one about Edwin, and one which was published many, many decades after her death about John. So there was a, a lot to work with there. In many ways, you know, I might make up the moment that they had a kind of memory or, or a plan or a perception about some event but often the actual thinking and and the feeling that they were having was something that I had found in their letters or their books and and the exception to this was Rosalie the oldest sister who left no mark really of any kind on the world a couple of letters and references to her in the letters of her brothers and sisters the letters and books of her brothers and sisters but even those are very, very vague. It's, she was uh, always talked about as some sort of invalid. And, and yet, you know, from what I can see, she was out and about in the world in certain ways. She had friends. She traveled back and forth between the family home to visit friends in Baltimore. And so that it, it's just, it was an incredible frustration never to be able to determine what this infirmity everybody is always talking about was. And as deeply as I was able to research, there is just no answer to that question. I gave her scoliosis because her death certificate talks about a marked case of scoliosis. But I've also read that medical use of that term was somewhat different in that time than in our time. And so... Even with the, the data of her death certificate, I I doubt that I have the infirmity right. So she was much more like the process of creating her was much more the kind I'm more familiar with in an entirely fictional book where I've got I've got, you know, if I were making up a fictional character, I would have a handful of characteristics that I wanted. And I would create a character out of that. And then I would begin to give her experiences and and ambitions and fears and, and the rest. But again, for Edwin and Asia, that stuff was sort of given to me, but for Rosalie, I had to make it up.
0: It's interesting that we talked so much about Rosalie there because to me, she was one of the most compelling characters in the novel. Every time it came back to her point of view, I was just glued to the page. I couldn't get enough of her. And I wanted to know a little bit about why it was important to you to begin the novel with a deep dive into Rosalie's character and the much differing context she grew up in than her younger siblings.
2: Well, I think uh, in some ways you answered your own question, that, it, that she did grow up in such a different family than the younger siblings did. And yet, you know, the young, younger siblings certainly felt the impact of that earlier family in ways that they might not have been completely aware of. When I began to look at the family, one of the first things that struck me was the death of the four children. And the younger children, with the exception of Edwin, they weren't even born when the last of those four children died then edwin was very very small when henry his older brother died in england so it it seemed to me that the family really shattered at that point and that i needed a character who was a witness to that and it, you know it couldn't be one of the characters that i had more information about because they were just too little and so I preferred Rosalie's point of view to June's, June being the oldest boy uh, and the only other possibility for a child who would have witnessed these things. So one of the, you know, one of the things about historical fiction that, or just about, you know, trying to imagine yourself into this other time and place that is so striking to me, at least a couple of things that are so striking. And one is, how common the death of a child was. So, you know, the the Lincolns as well lost all all their children but one in the end. And yet, you know, I cannot persuade myself, do not wish to persuade myself that it mattered less to them just because it was more common, that it was somehow easier to lose a child just because you knew that you might. And the other thing that, and this is not something that, my novel faces too directly, but I'm always astonished in historical novels, particularly the kind of historical romances of Jane Austen or Georgette Heyer or, you know, where the women seem to wish to be married when having a child is very likely a death sentence. And I, I, don't, I don't understand why, you know, Elizabeth Bennett doesn't get that she's really much better off not marrying
1: that's very interesting i have never thought about that before i always just assumed it was because women couldn't live on their own but i'm also not a historian
2: well i think i think you're right
1: i think you're right <laughs> women
2: couldn't couldn't live on their own but i just i th- think there would be more terror around the issue of getting married than there appears to be
1: yeah that's really interesting i wonder if we had more more accounts Maybe like if history had focused more on women's voices, if we would find that terror. One of the things that you kind of brought up that was really interesting to me was this death of a child. In terms of having Lincoln also use a, lose a child, and I think that throughout this novel, you've done a really great job of placing Lincoln's history throughout. And so I was wondering what the purpose and goal of that was to give us these very intimate accounts of the Booth lives and then sprinkle something in with Lincoln and his historical narrative and his personal life.
2: I have to admit that that was not my idea, that the book as I originally wrote it did not have those sections and that my agent suggested that when she read the book. And I I always say about myself as a writer, I do not have good ideas, but I know them when I hear them. When someone else gives me a good idea, I, I know it's a good idea. And so it was actually very enjoyable to go back and insert the bits about Lincoln. And and I think, you know, in, in my hope at least, really solidify a sense of what was going on in the country in a sort of larger perspective. And, you know, there's a lot, in Lincoln's life that would have been no fun to live through, but is enormously fun to think about.
1: Was there an importance to paralleling them? I know in your in the foreword to this novel or the author's note, you mentioned a little bit about what what made you want to write this novel. And so to me it felt really important, even though this wasn't your idea, that we got to see Lincoln as we were delving into the booths and their characters, because the two are opposed throughout history.
2: Yes. Again, I think a couple of things that that looking more closely at Lincoln brought into the book that wouldn't have been there without, or again, the parallel that you point out that we've already talked about of the, the death of their children. There seems to have been, you know, just a, a sort of a terrible coincidence of losing a child at 11. And I don't know if you have much experience with children at 11, but it's the best of us. You you hit your peak at 11 and it's, you're never as good a person again. So it's terrible to think of, of losing a child at that age. But also that, you know, I think everybody knows that Lincoln was murdered in, in a theater and that he, you know, that he, he went to the play that night and did not come home. But The fact that he had seen the Booth's act a number of other times, you know, that he had been to their own performances and that he admired both of them as actors, I think is not so well known. And and interesting to me, you know, interesting that that he actually attended a performance that John Wilkes Booth gave and asked him to come to the White House afterwards to be celebrated is shocking, shocking to learn. A better historian than I, Terry Alford, who was enormously helpful to me in writing this book. He's a nonfiction writer and he's done a lot of work on the on the Booths and is currently about to publish a book about the Booths, the Lincolns, and spirituality. Their sort of adventures with mediums, and which again very much involves, for Lincoln at least, his dead children and his his wife's need to reconnect with their dead children. But I learned in that book, unfortunately, too late to put it into my book, that Tad Williams, the smallest of the Lincoln boys, was a great theater buff and liked to run around backstage and had also met John Wilkes Booth.
0: All of that is such interesting historical context. And I really appreciated the way it was framed as well throughout the novel is it was like part character study of Lincoln, part narrative, part essay at some points. I loved the sort of fourth wall break almost that happens in the middle of the novel, where you talk about the song of Baltimore and how as recently as 2020, people have tried to revise it. And I think that that really, in some ways, leads into my next question, because this book is largely about bigotry. And I find that when I hear conversation in sort of everyday life about how bigotry is spread, it's often framed as something that's being taught at home, that's passed down from parent to child in the form of values, whatever that really means. But I think that Booth really makes a case that the social order you're exposed to can be more powerful than what you're taught at home. The kid's grandfather was smuggling enslaved people north and continually pushes his son Junius to free enslaved people on the farm. Junius himself then says he's an abolitionist, but in practice, his values are a lot more talk and a lot less action. Rosalie grows up with the enslaved around her and then as a child doesn't really understand or comprehend the horror of what she's seeing. So her values as an adult are a little squishier. And then, of course, the trio, Edwin, Asia, and John, don't have the example of their grandfather to compare to. They're raised in Baltimore, which is so drenched in the idea of being the South. And then the boys are sent to a boarding school where they're further indoctrinated into white supremacy. So I was curious, were you purposefully pushing up against that idea of family values trumping all when you wrote the family in this way? And sort of what are your thoughts about that idea of bigotry being something that's taught at home, values being something that's taught at home versus something that we're all exposed to every day in our current social order?
2: I don't think I was consciously pushing against any sort of narrative so much as I was trying to ascertain how these things actually worked in the Booth family and obviously thinking about the larger context as well. So you know one of the one of the strange facts that I discovered about the Booth family is that Mary Ann Booth the mother had two best friends and one of them was white and one of them was black. The black one Ann Hall worked for the family inside the house as a housekeeper when when the Booths had enough money to pay her. And the other was a woman they, that the children referred to as Auntie Rogers, who was a close neighbor. And for a period of the novel, Auntie Rogers owns the children of Ann Hall. And, you know, the, so there's this, this intimate female circle of Auntie Rogers, Ann Hall and Marianne Booth. In which you know one woman owns the children of the other. It's just a kind of an impossible thing to imagine. What what the undercurrents would have been, what the actual feelings would have been, and how I, I guess it, more difficult for me to imagine is how this wasn't seen as the problem that it clearly is. That and and I think you've you've touched on some of it that that one of the things I thought about was the sort of generational shift, which is, you know, the 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 grandfather who was clearly the most outspoken and, you know, matched words to action in his opposition to slavery, grew up in England and came to America as a quite an old man. And so I think the, that slavery was quite shocking to him, not something that he he had grown up with and something that he had a more clear-eyed view of because of that. And then at the other end, you have the children who just grew up with it all around them. And I don't know, you know, I think everybody has some version of this experience where maybe you go off to college, maybe it happens earlier than that, where you suddenly understand that your own family is crazy, you know, is just weird and they make no sense at all to anybody who's not in your family, but that's been invisible to you for years. You've just thought, well, this is what, this is how it's done. This is who we are. This is, this is who everybody is. And so in a similar way, I think there must be a moment where, a child who has grown up surrounded by slavery. Uh, the Booths themselves did not own slaves, but but they grew up surrounded by enslaved people. It seems to me that for the children, there must have been a moment where where you notice that. But that's not in any of the records that I can find. And again, another frustration of historical research was sort of how little they said about about the major issue of the day and uh, there was a sort of pretense that actors couldn't be political that you you I guess you wouldn't want to offend any part of the audience and therefore it was not for them to to take sides but the you know with the exception of John they were all pro-union and Edwin was very supportive of Lincoln and so I'm extrapolating from that, that he opposed slavery, although I cannot find a place where he said so, except for John, who was loud and proud about white supremacy and the whole system of slavery in general. It's, you know, it's, again, kind of peculiar how sympathetic he was, how empathetic he was to certain People and certain creatures and how completely not to others so that, you know, he loved dogs and he tortured cats and he loved white people and he could not have cared less what happened to black people.
1: You definitely touch upon that in this book very directly. And if you've listened to the podcast, you might get a sense. Maggie and I are very interested in looking at literature to kind of take something away with us that we can apply into the world. So we were wondering what your perspective is, maybe even just from imagining how the booths felt about how people can talk to their loved ones about inequity when we all live in the system of white supremacy. And it's so very embedded into us.
2: That is that is the question, isn't it? I mean, we are we are currently watching the hysteria over critical race theory, which is being now very loosely defined as anything I don't like. Whomever is the person talking about it, going to use the words this way now, and then I'm going to use the words another way later. And this really, to me, shockingly open decision to erase black history entirely from the school curriculum It just i'm gobsmacked i i i really i really have no words uh, you know i've lived through several periods of book banning so that's not something i'm unfamiliar with and i've certainly seen efforts to erase Aspects of history, particularly American history, from the curriculum before, but never so openly and and never so mean spiritedly. You remove Black history, and you remove fifty to sixty percent of the heroes of the country. Then can't be talked about, and it's it's astonishing to me the idea, you know, the idea that you shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable. Children shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable. I'm curious. This is a topic I know almost nothing about, but I know that there's, a, I think, a very, very fairly carefully designed curriculum around the Holocaust that's taught in the German schools, and I would be very curious as to when they introduce it and how they introduce it and how you deal with that when a child is is quite little. For my own experience, discovering the Holocaust was sort of the first in a completely paradigm-shifting moments in my childhood where I, I had thought the world was one sort of place and learned that it was another. And that was certainly unhappy, an unhappy discovery. But, you know, the world is what the world is. It's It's not going to go away just because I'm not looking at it. So, yeah, I, I guess that to try to answer your question more directly, it seems to me that at this moment, just talking about the whole of our history is somehow a, a rebellious act or a, an act of activism. And that that the best we can do is just to to keep it in our conversations and to keep Referring to it and to support the books that that are are looking at it, and particularly, you know, to support the books that are being banned and the authors that are being banned.
0: Well, thank you for sharing your philosophy on that with us. We really appreciate it. I think that as well. What you're saying about history not going away just because you're not looking at it resonates really strongly with me, especially in my professional work. I'm the executive director of a teeny, 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 tiny historical society. And I feel like I come up against that every single day with supporters and stakeholders who have so much love for the world in their heart, but often want to just talk about the celebratory parts of history. And I often have to find myself walking us back together to say, we can talk about the parts of our history that make us proud. Sure. But we also have to equally and importantly speak handedly about the parts of our history that we need to take responsibility for the parts that we did harm to so many people in. So it's, it's, a very pervasive problem I think in so many parts of our society and I appreciate you touching on that a little bit. I guess to refocus a little bit more specifically on the book something a theme that I was really interested in throughout the novel was sort of the idea of family legacy and it was something that kind of crept up on me as I kept going in the novel but it reminds me of conversations that we were just having about abolitionism but as well as the acting and how, in some ways, acting and the theater touched the lives of every single Booth child, even if they weren't necessarily an actor themselves, although a lot of them were, as well as also sort of the the ties between Junius and Edwin and their struggles with alcoholism. What were you hoping readers would take away about the message of family legacy within this novel?
2: I think that the Booths probably represent an extreme case. I mean, we are well aware now that alcoholism is partly a genetic issue and that there is written into the family DNA, it can be more or less of a problem. And that it's good to be aware. If, if you do come from a family where alcoholism is a problem, you are likely well aware of the fact that your family is full of alcoholics. But the Booths, first of all, I, for a variety of reasons, they seem, they seem peculiarly focused on Crafting a family legacy for themselves—that that the name Booth in in their minds needs to mean something, and they they need to create the legacy that they want around that name. You know, that's certainly not a thought that I ever had. An ambition that you know, none of my personal ambitions ever attached to the idea that this would you know enhance or solely the family name in any way. I think that may be a very old-fashioned kind of notion, but the Booths were clearly severely infected with that particular desire. And I think to some extent, the assassination of Lincoln, which it seems to me came out of many, many pieces of John Wilkes Booth's personality and difficulties and history, that, that that was one of them, that he he clearly had a sense of himself as a man with a great destiny. And I think that he, he believed in some way that, you know, that, that the family, that the, this would add luster in some way to the family name. And, you know, you can't, you take away the luster part. It certainly added to the fame of the family and the sort of, to me, uncomfortable fact that we would probably not be discussing this family if he had not killed Lincoln, which is uh, just a a morally repugnant idea to me, even as I admit its impact on me. That a person who murders a president is instantly more interesting than a person who doesn't is just... I I recoil. I recoil from that entire proposition. But the fact that I read, maybe it was Mark Twain who talked about the impact of Walter Scott on the South uh, on, on the White South and the notions of chivalry and of womanhood that, that became quite toxic came out of novels, uh, the novels that the boys were reading of you know what, of, of how white women had to be protected and, and how white men should behave, and that some of the creation of Southern culture, arose out of out of those books and and in a similar way uh, i would say some of the creation of the booth family arose out of shakespeare and the fact that they were so steeped in those plays and those narratives and those larger than life sense of tragedy and accomplishment and it's it's a question to which i have no inside information but to to go and act those parts over and over again. I wonder what that does to your own personality in the end.
1: I definitely got a sense of that reading the book. I also think you you talked a little bit about how repugnant it is, or repugnant, I don't know how to say that word. It is to, to think about John Wilkes Booth as a person that's interesting because he killed a president. And I think that this book was really great in looking at what makes a person a monster and how we can understand that and understand history. And so one of my questions for you while while reading this book is this idea of really looking at the face of white supremacy and how it occurs and how radicalization happens. But also I noticed that while you were looking at this, you didn't really delve into Black trauma in an exploitative way. You were very honest about it. But it was not your focus. And so I thought that as a white author, that was really masterfully done. And so we would love to know more about your feelings about how I'm about about writing about black trauma and and how not to exploit it, because I feel like a lot of narratives that deal with the Civil War in the South really do delve into this one way of living. And it can come off as it can come off as cringy, you know, when it's created by white creators.
2: The family that was in many ways closest to the Booths, the Hall family, Joe Hall ran the farm for Junius Booth, and he had started out enslaved, but was able to buy his own freedom, and he worked for Junius Booth. And I think, you know, Junius Booth's money helped him buy his own freedom, the the wages that he earned. And then he began trying to save up enough money to buy his wife who lived at a nearby plantation eventually was able to do that but not for many many years and then they began to try to buy their children and the the whole time their their lives are very intertwined with the booths lives and they're just fascinating you know to me i just think they would be an incredible subject for a book and one of the most surprising things that's in the part of the uh, a part of their story that involves the booths is that reporters would come to Ann Hall after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln to ask her, you know, how she now felt about John and her her love for him just never wavered. She would not entertain the idea that he was a monster when the rest of the world so clearly thought that he was. Anyway, I think they would be an incredible subject for a book. And I wish that was a book that I could write, but I know that it's not a book that I can write. The things that they face, the sort of, you know, the peculiar institution of slavery, one of the peculiarities is this, is expressed in this family where half the children are free and half are enslaved. And just what that looks like and how you, how you navigate that within the family, I think would be fascinating. But Not my story to tell. You know, this is a very tricky topic, I think, because I do very much believe that it's all one story, that we're all part of the same humanity, and that it's not that I couldn't tell that story. It's that I wouldn't be the best person to tell that story, and that, that maybe I should leave that space open for somebody who would do a better job than I would do.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's really interesting to hear authors talk about how they kind of choose what stories are theirs to tell and and which ones aren't. Harmony, I'm going to go off script for a second. Fair warning. That was the last of sort of the set questions that we had. But Karen, circling kind of back to the beginning of our conversation, we talked really briefly about the idea that, you know, childbirth and marriage would, was a death sentence for so many women and how you were sort of imagining that at that time period, generally speaking, it would be a an endeavor kind of filled with, with more terror than is often ascribed it in books. And I was wondering, Asia in the last third of the novel becomes a mother. And there are moments where she's, especially after her very traumatic first birth. When she becomes pregnant again, she is terrified and she's open about that and she writes letters about that. And I was curious, just given your thoughts, how much of that was actually sort of left behind in Asia's, you know, multiple letters and books and how much of that was your sort of imagining of the situation, knowing what you did about the facts of, of the birth of her first child?
2: Almost all of the feelings that that I ascribe to Asia do come out of her letters so again it was I had less of a sense that I was making up a fictional character and more of a sense that I was pulling together the bits and pieces that she left behind to create something whole so yeah she was very I think she, in the end, she had a very unhappy marriage. It didn't start out as an unhappy marriage, but it certainly became one. And most of her post-assassination life, it was quite a miserable marriage with children dying and with a philandering husband who did not appear to care much for her and living in a foreign country because the attention in America became so intense that they fled to England so, yeah, there's a, you know, this wonderful record of letters that she wrote her friend Jean over decades of their friendship. And those things are talked about quite openly in those.
0: That's really interesting to me that there's so little of, of that kind of sentiment in the historical record. But Asia Booth was able to really openly talk in her letters to friends about about that feeling of terror and, and her thoughts on motherhood in that experience. You were talking at the very beginning about trying to sort out the truth of sort of what was happening around the booths because people's sentiment around the family changed so much after the assassination. And I find that one of the most frustrating, but also most rewarding parts about doing historical work is trying to piece through what people are self-editing in the moment and what people are, are almost like purposefully obfuscating versus those moments that often happen in letters that aren't necessarily thought of as being something that are going to be around hundreds of years later of just pure emotion and raw truth in people. So that particularly fascinates me.
2: Do you have a particular period that you, that you focus on?
0: Yeah. So my focus is on the sort of 1850s in Seattle, which is where I live and thinking about colonization in this area specifically And my scholarship is largely around relationships between early settlers in that area and kind of the fact that so late in the colonization period, the people who were coming here knew exactly what they were doing to indigenous nations and indigenous cultures. And they had just sort of really gone all in and ascribed to the idea that this land was theirs to own and theirs to take. So that's a lot of what my scholarship focuses on.
2: That's interesting. That certainly was the case in California here as well. Just very systematic extermination, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to, it's difficult to read 200 years later, but I I think it's also one of the most important pieces of history that we have to face is this idea that it does come down to individuals' decisions to move West and to participate so openly and enthusiastically in systems of colonization.
2: Yes.
1: I don't have any other questions that I can think of off the top of my head, but I really enjoyed this book. And I really enjoyed the fact that I got to learn more about history through reading it because reading from a textbook isn't always the most fun. So (laughs) thank you. It was amazing.
2: Thank (laughs) you. And thank you
1: for coming to talk to us. Thank you. (laughs) It's been
2: a pleasure.
0: Do you want to tell people where they can get the book and when it's available?
2: The book will be published on March 8th and supply chain issues notwithstanding, hopefully will be available in your local independent bookstore.
1: Yay! And your (laughs) library. Yeah, ask for it from your
0: library if they haven't gotten it already. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. This was such a fantastic conversation. Listeners, we will talk to you all next week. Harmony, do you know what we're reading next week? No. So that will be a surprise <laughs> for everybody.
1: Thank right, you, Karen. Thank you. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.com club and clicking read along with the show you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the gays See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts.